Sean Levy has a new book. Not one of his showbiz blockbusters, but get the concept. Poems he wrote inspired by the obituary pages of the New York Times. That's what it says on the cover. I am somewhat simpatico with him, although I'm not a poet, because I wrote all the obits on Oregon Music News for the first eight or nine years of our existence. Why did he do it? How's it affected him? What was the process? By the way, did you even know he was a poet? He'll read a few during our conversation, including one on Sharon Jones. Happy to have Sean Levy back with us. Throw this little chromium switch, and uh, that was Fire Sign Theater. <laughs> uh, glad to have you here in the Artichoke Cafe. On a charming spot. It is. Yeah. It is. It's very charming. We like it here. It's cozy. And you wander in next door and see all these crazy instruments. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's nice. It's nice. It's good. And uh, it's been our home for a few years now, you know. The last time didn't we do this at Catfish Lou's last time? Yeah, some bar up up like in Northwest yes. Industrial District. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, they moved to Beaverton, and I went. I don't think so. No, no, no. <laughs> How can you even have a place with a name like that in the suburbs? I know. It, it doesn't it's, doesn't it's, work. It's a shame. Yeah. Anyway, but it was 90, 90 minutes ninety seconds from my house. <laughs> See, that was one of the advantages. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I know you got a a, a a major book coming out. In, um, in, in, in the spring. Spring of 22, yeah. 22, and that's great. And I want to have you on then, too. But this, this seems to be a labor of love. This is major in another sort of way. This is major in, in sort of knitting the beginning of my writing life with mm -hmm. the present moment in my writing life in a way I never could have anticipated. Yeah, yeah. You know, I um, <clears throat> I have an MFA in poetry, uh -huh. and I became a dad while I was an MFA student. <clears throat> and poetry is a tough buck. Oh and, yeah, I used to live with a poet. I understand. <laughs> you know, so so I looked for other opportunities, and I literally opened the LA Times every day. I was in grad school in Southern California, and looked under writer and editor, and that's how I found my first job in journalism. Really. Um, but I was writing poems and reading poems every day of my life, mm -hmm. nearly. Um, I've never gone to a foreign country without buying books of the great poets of that country in their native tongue, uh -huh. original editions whenever I could find them. Um, I have oceans of poetry memorized. Huh. And <clears throat> in 2010, I was in walkabout, on Walkabout in South America, and some poems came out of me. It was a very familiar experience sitting uh -huh. in a cafe in a foreign country, nursing a newspaper for the entire day. Yeah. And then poems started coming out. And that subsided. But then... And you wrote I, them down. I wrote them down. Okay. I kept them. Two of them... One of them was actually published. Wow. Uh, uh, I've published very few poems. Everybody's uh, published very few poems. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> there, there are real poets in this world. And they, oh, they work at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm well aware. Uh, and and getting, getting your verse into the world, that's a job. Oh, yeah. And a thankless one. Um, uh, my girlfriend won a push card and... You know, went all over the country. She read with Amiri Baraka and all kinds of stuff like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm acquainted with that life. Yeah, the, it is. It, it's a calling because you know, the the rewards are so so. Uh, how, how, 
they're they're immaterial in the sense of like they're not financial. They're not right. you know you can't put them on your mantelpiece. Um, they're real. They're 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 the the rewards of art. They're the rewards of satisfaction. Um, but they're not you know. The people who make a living at poetry are, are pretty pretty few and far between. Poets are dangerous. They can be. Oh, they are. You know why? Tell me. They know more about you than you would like them to. Well, they know more about the things you say, and they're like novelists <laughs> in, in their um, ability to discern. You know, they're watching for material all the time. Uh -huh. um, in the days when I was writing a lot of poetry, I would always have a little notebook in my pocket with a tiny pen or pencil like a golf pencil uh -huh. so i could be very discreet a, a palm-sized little <laughs> notebook i used to buy them in chinatown and um you know i'd hear someone say something i'd write it down and uh -huh. be flipping through my notebook in a few days and say oh that yeah yeah that sentence that was a good one um but for me poetry of all the arts it resembles like working in mosaic you're, mm -hmm. you're placing words in such a way to give an overall experience, but the individual words can be very familiar words. I've had the experience of reading someone like Wallace Stevens or John Ashbery, mm -hmm. and I know every word in the sentence, and yet the sentence blows my mind yeah. and doesn't make quote-unquote sense yes. in the typical way we use language. Right. And to me, that's one of the great things that poetry can do. Yeah. It's what differentiates poetry from everything else. Yeah, you know, when we say that someone's novel is is poetic, we're saying there are passages where, like, the language is 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 the subject. Yeah. That the 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 essence of the writing is not the story, the plot, the character, but the sentence. Yes. And the components of the sentence, the 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 individual words, the punctuation, mm -hmm. how you get through those words, mm -hmm. and poetry allows you to zoom in on that. In a way that you know, a novel or or a, you know, full book of nonfiction or or an article cannot. I mean, you talk about a, a, a sonnet, 140 syllables. Um, you got to get a lot of work done. Yeah. With those, the, each of yeah. those words has to be doing more than one thing to earn its place in that syllable count. Yeah. Yeah. Yet you spent so much of your career dashing off stuff right after you watched a movie and 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 in books as well um you know i like to think that that my love of poetry informed the flow of my prose mm -hmm. and my word choice and syntax um vert all the time in the oregonian uh -huh. or in my books i was dropping lines of poetry that i have in my head <laughs> You know, and not not calling attention to it, and someone would say, "Well, that's an odd phrase," and I was like, "Yeah, that's Theodore Rutke." You know, <laughs> I stole that from from Robert Lowell from T. S. No, Eliot. Yeah, you all didn't. the time. You did all the time, and I love to think that there were like three readers of this paper when it had a circulation of a half a million who were like, "Oh my God, that's you know from Proof Rock," and, and that was just my joy. You know, yeah. uh, to me, all 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 the words and all the writing are one pool. Mm -hmm. And I was happy to, you know, make allusions. There are things in here. There's a poem about uh, 
the woman who appears in Casablanca, Yvonne, the French girl who cries mm-hmm. when they sing La Marseillaise. Yeah. And it has the line, soon to be divorced. That's Bob Dylan. That's from Tangled Up in Blue. <laughs> you know, every poet does that. You're a magpie. Homer did it. We just don't know who he was stealing from, but he stole. <laughs> No, not Homer. Yeah, everybody. Everybody. You're part of a living tradition when you're writing poetry, when you're writing anything, but particularly in poetry. It's like folk music. You say, I'm taking on this mantle, and I'm going to be aware of what came before me and what's going on around me, and I'm hopeful that what I add to it will have some resonance in, in the future flow of this, this stream. Couldn't they sue you? <laughs> no, no, it's an illusion. It's it's a quote. I'm not trying to sell it as mine, and you know, I dare them to find it. It's not. It's not like. Um, it's not like uh, good to the last drop or, or uh, have it your way. It's not. It's it, it's not a commercial advertisement. And and Dylan of all people, if Dylan, if if you could sue for quoting other people, Bob Dylan would be walking around with a barrel selling uh, apples. Right. Right. You know, so stealing from Dylan, you're basically, you know, that's 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 like, you know, help police. That man stole my cocaine. I mean, you, it's just you're not going to get any comfort there, pal. Sorry. Yes, I remember when I was living in Baltimore, and we 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 lived in in a in a changing neighborhoods, put it put it that way, and uh, there was a a, a preteen um, um, thievery ring in the neighborhood, and they they came and they they took my large bong yeah. at a time when it was illegal. And I, cops called me up and they said, uh, we, we found their stuff here. Uh, do you have a big water pipe? Oh, no, that's not mine. <laughs> exactly. They must have got that from somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, okay. So you've had this lifelong, you know, um, a love of poetry and working in poetry and making poetry and, and all that. Um, how, does, how do we get to a year in the life of death? Well, at the end of 2015, Thanksgiving weekend, I was at a, po- a, a, a literary reading here in Portland um, called Burnt Tongue. It's a mm-hmm. bunch of the uh, people who've participated in Tom Spanbauer's dangerous writing community over the decades. And it's a crush bar uh, um, in Southeast. And I, I have been a lifelong aficionado of the obituaries. I'm a newspaper man and a biographer. Obituaries are exactly where the Venn diagram of those two things meet. It's daily news and it's a whole life. Um, And the New York Times obits in particular um, because they're so stylized. There's there's a specific form to the headline. Mm -hmm. There's specific form to the head, the top of the the obit. In Mm -hmm. every New York Times obit, they explain how they know the person died. <laughs> the death was confirmed by his son. Yeah. The death was confirmed by her employer. Yeah. You know, he, they died at such and such age, such and such cause in such and such place. That's always near the top. Yeah. And that, there's something ritualistic about that. So mm-hmm. I had this love of it and I clip obituaries and mm-hmm. I happened to have clipped an obituary that week for Adele Mailer, uh-huh. one of the wives of Norman Mailer. And at this reading event, uh, the novelist Mo Davio read her piece uh, occasioned by the death of Adele Mailer. She had worked as an archivist in Austin, Texas, and yeah. handled Mailer's papers and had very strong and, I think, correct opinions about him and the women in his life. 
And when Mo finished her piece, there was a, a break or some point in the evening, and I walked up to her and we started talking about Adele Mailer. And I said, mm -hmm. I have, I clipped that same obit. And, and I was writing a lot of poetry again at that time. And I thought, I literally had the, in the conversation with her, I said, I bet there is a prompt for a poem every day in the obit section <laughs> of the New York Times. And almost on the spot, I decided I would try it. I would see. I would do this every day. Give myself a discipline of of writing a poem based uh -huh. on something in the paper, huh. and I arbitrarily said I would do it for a year, um, and it turned out to be the year 2016 when oh. everybody died. Yes, David Bowie was the first death that affected us all, uh -huh. but. Soon after Bowie was Alan Rickman, Prince, Muhammad Ali, Arnold Palmer, Nancy Reagan, Antonin Scalia, uh, Fidel Castro, John Glenn. <laughs> um, you know, the year ended with Carrie Fisher dying, followed by her mother, Debbie Reynolds, you know, 24 hours later. Right. Um, it, it was crazy. Like right. every yeah, day yeah, you were waking yeah. up, you know, Merle Haggard, George Michael, uh, Glenn Fry, one after another, after another in all fields. And... The New York Times actually did an article in early 2017 saying, no, no, you're not going crazy. There really were more famous people dead last year than in most years. They uh -huh. counted their page one obits. Wow. And it was almost double huh. what they would run in a normal year. Huh. Um, so I had this amazing you know, wealth of material but also daunting. How do you write a poem about Muhammad Ali? How yeah. do you write a poem about yeah. John Glenn or Fidel Castro? Yeah. And reading the obits every day with an eye toward making poems of what was there, I discovered the guy who invented General Tso's chicken, <laughs> the guy who put the at sign in the ampersand. Was General Tso, was his name General Tso? Uh, yes, no, his name was not, but there was such a general. Okay. <laughs> um, so you know, there were all these people I'd never heard of, a Miss America who was radicalized in the 50s and wouldn't wear a swimsuit um, and, you know, wound up uh, the, the Miss, uh, Miss USA started a swimsuit manufacturer, started that pageant because <laughs> this one Miss America would not wear a swimsuit. Um, so I discovered all these people I didn't know. Yeah. And then there were curious little cases, people who I loved or meant something to me who were not super, super famous, like Maggie Roach, uh -huh. the, the great singer, or Catherine Dunn, the, the Portland novelist, yeah. who's a, a good friend. Um, so as I was writing, you know, these banner people, these little folks came in as well. And it wound up taking me more than four years to write and gather and, wow. and you know I, I had in mind to call the book book a century of death and have it be a hundred <laughs> poems yeah and it is a hundred poems but uh -huh. since it's based on a year century was confusing uh -huh. to people yes so that's how we got to this a year in the life of death a year in the life of death wow when uh i was going to call it the obit poems First it was Century of Death, then it was the Obit poems, and a woman named Victoria Chang did a brilliant book two years ago called Obit, mm -hmm. and you know it was a like, sort of national book award or Pulitzer finalist, you know, worthy book, mm -hmm. and published by a very you know large poetry house, Copper Canyon Press. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't have this nearly the same title. So yeah. 
Um, Shannon, my partner, and I were sitting uh, or driving one night, kicking the ideas around, and I blurted out a year in the life of death. And she said, that's it. And that's it. spoke to the editor and the publisher, and they were yeah. like, oh, my God, that's it, that's yeah. it. Yeah. So what exactly is the University of Health? Press. University of Hell <laughs> Press is based in Portland. It yeah. started by Greg Gerding as a way to publish his own books. Uh -huh. And he has expanded and he's published books by many Portland writers and writers from other, other uh, cities. Um, he's published more than 40 books, Coffee Table, Mom and Pop Shop, uh -huh. or actually just Pop Shop. And the same day he published this book, he published a book called 2020, The Year of the Asterisk, where he uh -huh. had 50 writers um, give a response to some aspect of that, you know, horrific year of yeah. pandemic, presidential elections, civil unrest, natural disasters. Um, and, you know, it's a brilliant, you know, uh, uh, one-two punch because he's got my book covering one year in depth. Yeah. And then he's got another book covering another year in depth. Oh. And he, it, University of Hell, I don't know where he came up with that name. It's a great name. It is a great name. And yeah. he, he, you know, they did such a beautiful job on this book. I mean, it's, it's a really handsome thing. It is. Um, he hired uh, Gigi Little, who's a dear friend of mine, to do the cover um, and the interior design. And, you know, I got to participate in that. I had always had in my mind an image of a tombstone, uh -huh. uh, like broken down old tombstone with a bunch of blue New York Times bags, it's like you know, as if like the paper's being yeah. delivered but no one's there to collect yeah, them. Yeah. Um, that's a little too on the nose, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, Greg, Greg has just just you know hit hit the ball so hard in publishing this and and supporting it, and I'm I'm, I'm forever grateful. When I was working on this book, I thought. This this would be perfect for someone like University of Hell Press, yeah. but not thinking of myself as a poet, I was like, that's that's a real place for real poets. I, I uh -huh. may not belong there. <laughs> and it was the editor Eve Connell who works with Greg who said, no, you you do belong, and I'm taking this uh -huh. to Greg. Great. And he immediately said yes. So that's uh, wonderful. I mean, that was a big day for me. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, you want to give us a sample? Sure. So. All the poems have the same form. Um, uh -huh. They all end with the New York Times headline of the obituary. Uh -huh. And I consider that to be the land of each poem. So sometimes when you're reading them, there's this kind of unboxing effect or, you know, one of these little wads of paper you throw in water and it blossoms into a flower. Um, mm -hmm. And it's meant to do that. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's meant to keep you guessing. Sometimes you know who it is and it, mm -hmm. it, it comes about like and you you get this satisfying result other times you're surprised yeah um because of some information that's in the poem or something you didn't know so i'll read one um this is someone who i i had some personal contact with in my life mm -hmm. so none of these poems has a title um <clears throat> and sort of the headline is the final line of the poem mm -hmm. It is no easy thing to be a son, much less a namesake, much less to a king, much less in his wake. If he'd been looking out for you, the old man would have sent you off to school, insisted you master your own field, only allowed you near the business on the backstage side. But that wasn't how it went. You sang his songs, 
You grew into his face. You conducted his band. You bore his name. Eighteen years you outlived him, but he was there every minute. Senior to your junior, ideal to your aspirant, father to your gifts and agonies, the acme of your effect, only getting further from you the nearer you approached him. Frank Sinatra Jr., 72, <laughs> dies, fathered, followed father's footsteps. <laughs> so Frank, Frank Jr. was a um, kind of an enemy of mine. Um, I, I wrote oh. a book about his dad and his chums called Rat Pack Confidential yeah. in 1998. And in 2010, I was approached by a British publisher to do chapter headings and captions for a book that retails for 800 US, um, an art book of Rat Pack photos that were uncovered in an archive and had never been seen. Wow. And Frank Sinatra Jr. was going to write the introduction. <laughs> and he used, when he de delivered his introduction, it was filled with insults for the author, me, of the book in which this was the introduction. And um, the publisher was in his home in Beverly Hills saying, Frank, we, we can't run this in this book and then <laughs> attack the book. Um, and Frank stamped his Uggs on the marble floor, according to the publisher, Tony Normand, and uh, insisted that either you take it as I wrote it or, or we part ways. And God bless Tony. He gave, you know, he, he sent Frank on his way and he <laughs> stuck with me. Um, so an original version of this poem was talking about how, you, you know, there's a phrase that you see on the internet, die angry about it. And it was a little like that, but that was, that was too much me and not enough him. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to have a heart for people, even if I didn't, um, didn't see eye to eye with them in this life. Shall we do another? Yeah. Okay, this one, is it, you might have guessed Frank Sinatra Jr., maybe, if, if you were... Wait, wasn't he, he was kidnapped, right? He was kidnapped by... Have you heard that podcast? Um, no, but he was kidnapped by classmates of his sister, Nancy, from yeah. Hollywood High. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he was... Released by them on the same stretch of Mulholland Drive where Bill Cosby's son Ennis was shot <laughs> in a carjacking. Oh my God. Like almost on the exact same spot, um, which is a poem too, but I'm not going to write the that one. The podcast uh, is, what is his name? Oh man, is an actor. James Franco ah. does, does the podcast and it includes the kidnapper. Yeah, yeah. Those guys, you know, they went to jail and yeah. they served their time. This happened yeah. in the early 60s. <laughs> A coin toss, heads or tails. You're 27 years old, that number. And there's one seat on the plane. You win, you fly. You lose, you take the bus. It comes up tails, or was it heads? And the Mexican kid from LA gets your spot. For 58 years, you would wonder what force made that coin land as it did. You and Waylon Jennings riding through the night on a cold, dark bus watching the storm, both in Buddy Holly's band, both left behind when the pilot took a hard turn to oblivion. Buddy, the big bopper, and Richie Valens, who won that coin toss, gone. And you left to marry, raise your kids, build a career, even get inducted into Oklahoma's Music Hall, Hall of Fame, 
all on the back of a 50-50 shot. Call it fortune, call it fate, call it a blessing, or like you did that night in Iowa, call it in the air and live with your choice. Uh. Tommy Alsop, 85, guitarist with luck. Yeah. Uh. Remember American Hot Wax? The film, sure. I was that little kid. <laughs> I was the little kid. I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have a Buddy Holly fan club, but that was me. I, I, sh I should have had a Buddy Holly fan club, but I didn't. That's one of those events that resonated. American yeah. Pie, yeah. Um, you know, the Buddy Holly story, which right. was Gary Busey's, yeah. in effect, yeah. his breakout yeah. role, his debut. Yeah. Um, the uh, singer-songwriter Marshall Crenshaw appears uh -huh. in the film La Bamba as Buddy Holly. Right. You right. know, that, there, yeah. there's a lot yeah. around that event. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just amazing to think that Richie Valens could have lived if the coin came up the other way amazing. and this guy would have yeah. died at 27 and no yeah. one would know his name. Yeah, yeah. Jay Leno played Alan Freed's That's right. chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> he always yeah. liked... Cars, that guy. <laughs> An American hot wax, geez. That's a, I think that's a really underrated movie. It's not a really great movie. No, it's a period piece it is a period of a period piece. piece. It is. It there is. was that moment in the, you know, started by American Graffiti and Happy Days, yep. Yep. Uh, Lords of Flatbush, um, where yep. uh, The Wanderers, the Philip Kaufman film, mm -hmm. um, which, which looked back to the 50s in the 70s. Uh -huh. um, and now we're 40 years after that. And those things still, like, you know, I think most people think of, of the, you know, the pre-Beatles, you know, California farm town looks like American graffiti. I think the immediate, when I, the, the moment that I learned that Buddy Holly had died had more of an effect on me than when I learned that Kennedy had, had, had died. Wow. I, I can see myself walking into the into the little soda fountain there in Baltimore, and somebody telling me, "Buddy Holly died," and I couldn't believe it. My first memory that I can place a date on is uh -huh. um, I was not well, I was I was two years and one month old uh -huh. uh, when John Kennedy died, and I don't remember that. Yeah. I remember being held by my mother, and she she was screaming out the apartment window to my dad. Wow. They shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, wow. And I remember the tumult. Jeez. I don't, you know, I didn't know what that meant, yeah, but, you yeah. know, I know I remember that. Wow. I, like, have a visual of it. Yeah. Did you actually ever write obituaries? Did you ever have that gig? Not, not per se. There were, you know, when, when well-known film personalities yeah, died, yeah. Um, and I was a staff writer at the Oregonian, uh -huh. I was frequently called upon to write their obituary rather yeah. than to use a wire service obituary uh -huh. and there was a time when um, our mutual editor Mark Wigginton yes. said to me why don't you why don't you stockpile some right. I mean you know Brando's gonna die Bob Hope's gonna die yeah. um, uh, you know um, there were several people including some I wound up writing books about Frank Sinatra uh -huh. um, so I wrote about eight or ten and we just put them on the server with blank spaces where right. you would fill in the date and place and right. cause of death. And, right. you know, most of these people, we had decided that their career had happened. Yes. And, you know, there may be a few, unless they, you know, pulled off some, some you know, huge surprise at the end of their lives, the, you know, the, the, 
the obit would as uh, you know obits are not a window on the world says the right. obituary editor of the new york times they're <laughs> a rearview mirror yes and most of the most of the times most of the time you see an obit in the paper it's about the person is in there because of things that they did 30 to 50 years ago yeah yeah. Um, you know, in the prime, quote unquote prime of life. And then if they live into their 80s or so, you know, that's that's when this story gets published. But it, you wind up writing about things yeah. that, that are long past. But writing o- immediate obituaries is very, very difficult. Yeah. Especially yeah. if that person means something, to, has meant something to you. Yeah, that's that was what the luxury was of being told. You know, yeah. why, don't, why don't you bank yeah. obituaries right. on, on you right. know a couple of your heroes? Uh, Oregon Music News is 12 years old today. By God the way, God bless. Happy birthday. Thank you. And um, for the first at least eight years, I did all the obits, and then I couldn't do them anymore. I just couldn't do them. Alan Toussaint was the last one that I could. I could. You know, I mean, I did have to do a few after that. You know, because we broke the story. I mean, like yeah, Carl yeah. Jackson died, and Lisa Lapine died, and the people like that. But, um, uh, but it, it was too much for me. It was just—I remember sitting there crying, writing Captain Beefheart's obit. Oh man, yeah, yeah. It's it's um. There's a there's a wonderful. While I was working on this book, there's an appendix here that's a movie review uh-huh. because someone released a documentary called Obit. Oh. And it's about, tw- they spend a week at the New York Times obit desk in 2015. Wow. And they watch them go through the process of pulling up the morgue files on the person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, making the interview where they, you know, like someone died. It was, a, I believe, a former congressman from Illinois. Mm-hmm. And the obit writer calls and he gets the person's son or daughter. And he has this, you know, sort of. Um, um, routine set of questions that he asks, you know, what what were his parents' names? Where did they meet and marry? What did they do? Was his mother a homemaker or did, did yeah. she have a job? And, you know, so you're seeing how, how, how the sausage gets made. Yeah. And what's brilliant in that movie is a guy makes a mistake that they have to correct. Oh, geez. This is something, you know, people talk <clears throat> trash about the media. There is no other institute in our culture, no other institution in our culture if they make a mistake, they tell you the next day. Right. You know, right. And, right. I, it's the most sick-making thing when you're a journalist and you have to go over to your editor and say, we need to run a correction. I'm, I misspelled a name. Oh, it's worse if they catch it and you don't. Well, six of one, half a dozen <laughs> no, of another. I don't it's, know about it's, that. It, you know, I mean, they could catch it because someone called it to their attention. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's always awful. And this guy, it awful. In, yeah. it, we see him conduct this interview, filling out this routine set of questions. Yeah. And he finds out that the, 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 the newly deceased fellow's grandfather had been a congressman. Huh. And he assumed that that guy would have been from the same political party, and he wasn't. Huh. It was Democrat or Republican, I forget which, but it was the opposite party of his grandson. Uh-huh. And he had to correct that. And then, you know, it's the Bruce Weber, the, the journalist who makes the error, uh-huh. you know, has the humility to say, you know, it was my bad, and I didn't ask the question. I just assumed, and right. God always asked the questions. Yeah. Um, but it's brilliant also because it shows like how they make the sausage and 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 what what you don't notice. A, a daily reader of the New York Times obits, and I never noticed this. The lead obit, the topmost one on the page, gets the verb, dies, mm-hmm. is dead. Yes. Um, no other obit on the page does. 
So huh. it'll say Joe Smith 87 dies, ran you yes. know, Fortune 500 company. And everything under that will be you know, Joe Smith 87 ran Fortune 500 company. Yeah. It does not include the verb. The verb from the, wow. the topmost uh, uh -huh. obit. Uh -huh. serves for the whole page uh. i didn't know that uh. and you see them also on days when you know there's not enough not enough famous dead people what do yeah. we do yeah. and they start digging around online to um places that collect gather obits curate obits from sources all over the world um and and they find a couple of interesting pieces oh this this is good we didn't have anything on this guy let's see what yeah. we can you know let's see if there's a piece here yeah i loved yeah. seeing that you know I got fired from a gig because I made a mistake one time. Oh, no. Yeah. And it still kills me. I was, I was working for some, I don't know, it was when, in that period when there was a, a transition going from, from video to, to uh, going from, from words to video on, on, um, uh, on the Internet. And, and, and I guess it was an, an NBC, it was an NBC affiliate job, right? It was a uh, some kind of I was writing about some drug or something, and I got the name wrong. Got the name wrong. That yeah, I, got that, the name that's, wrong. that could actually and completely be completely wrong. Yeah, I mean that that could be a consequential error. I can see and that. that still kills me. <clears throat> and that was thirty years ago. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you know the sixty-nine Mets. <laughs> There's a great documentary, by the way, Once Upon a Time in Queens. It's on ESPN. No, thank you. Well, it's about the 86 Mets, but it does right. have the footage uh, yeah, of Davey yeah. Johnson making the last out. No, thank you. For, in 69 and then coming no, back in 86. You. No, thank you. <laughs> There's some great stuff in, the, in, that, in that documentary. There's nothing great about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was eight, or just not quite eight, and I was at the game That's where the, the Mets won age. the 69 World That's Series. That's a perfect age yeah. for baseball fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be there watching your hometown oh, team. Oh, shut up. <laughs> oh, I'll read your Mets poem. <laughs> okay. Since you like them so well. Um, <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you just stab me instead? <laughs> you know, the, the book is broken into um, sections that are sports, the arts, um, one that's in the newsroom, which are things where I'm commenting on what could have been uh -huh. the reason that this happened in this way on yeah. this page, on this date, or yeah. com commenting on the, um, well, here, I'll, I'll share one of those just to give it the gist of it. Um, this is the whole poem. Uh -huh. Asshole. <laughs> the word you're looking for but can't bring yourself to publish is asshole. <laughs> Sam Bell, 88, an exacting mentor of runners. Edward <laughs> Davis, world's grumpiest boss, dies at 85. <laughs> <clears throat> but here, here's the Mets poem. <clears throat> I was born a Mets fan. So doomed by entering this veil of woe through the agency of two broken-hearted Brooklyn Dodger fans, were there any other kind? Who nearly gave up baseball altogether, only to be gifted a new team and a new son in the same year, and who chose to hang on to both. Just days before my first tears, you too were born to the team, drafted away from Philadelphia where you hit a buck twenty-eight as a rookie, an anointed second-string catcher on the worst team ever to play. A lot came out of those first Mets, most of it not much more palatable than the things that came out of me. 
but to spend a precious draft pick on a catcher named Choo Choo, who couldn't hit his weight, <laughs> called every newsman bub, and would retire to become a Chinese cook. That was, even for a team renowned for terrible decisions doubled down upon, as notable as my toddling steps and words. Ordinary things done endlessly since, but never with such panache as when done first. <laughs> Choo Choo Coleman, a catcher with the original woeful Mets. Yes, I saw him play when he was a Red Sox. Choo Choo <laughs> Coleman, I could not work this into the poem. Um, <laughs> he was kind of a simple fella. Uh-huh. And uh, a reporter said to him, what's your wife's name and what's she like? <laughs> And he's like, he says, her name's Mrs. Coleman, bub, and she likes me. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Uh, that reminds me of uh, uh, an old blues man I, 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 I was sitting next to on the stage at the Blues Festival one time. His nickname was Bud. It was something Bud something, right? And, and uh, he had this most spectacular red suit on. Pants were red, coat was red, gorgeous, right? The old man, really old man. And I just sat down, I said to him, hey, uh, that's a great suit. Thank you. I said, where'd you get that? He said, I don't know. Because <laughs> he didn't want to tell me. Because he thought I would go get one. I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would. I would. I could see you in a red suit, but I can't see you in a suit at all. I don't uh, know. Oh, no, no. Oh, I used to dress. I used to, I was all vintage for a long time. I believe that. Not now. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, all right. Well, look. Um, you got any more? Because we could. Is there, is there one we could go out on? Yeah. Are this, you? Are you do, first of all, are you doing any any public readings with this? We're on November 11th. Um, the two books, um, "A Year in the Life of Death" and "2020: The Year of the Asterisk," will uh -huh. uh, be sort of officially launched in a live event at Mother Foucault's bookstore uh -huh. on Southeast Morrison in Portland. I've been there. And a great, great, great shop. And um, we're also planning to do something live. My partner, Shannon, is going to basically roast me in what we're calling an <laughs> improvisum. Um, but the date is TBD on that. It'll, it'll be sometime in November. Well, um, good, because you probably deserve it. Well, yeah, the roasting, not not <laughs> not, not not the uh, not the renown. Well, no, of course. So that, I'll, re I'll that, read this that, one. That's what I meant. Yeah, <laughs> this is a this is a personal one. You okay. know, the the book ends with a chapter called "The Personals," where there are poems mm -hmm. about my parents, poem about Catherine Dunn, mm -hmm. um, and you know, again, keeping with the theme of assembling it like a newspaper. You know, you have the personals, mm -hmm. or at least you used to. Did. Anyway, this, this poem um, is one of the first ones I wrote, and it came out of that, that, that desire to, to yeah. you know, dig into myself in a uh -huh. way that nonfiction books and newspaper writing haven't ever allowed me. Yeah. I had no appetite then or now for your prince. Ours was a Ronzoni house and would not budge, and of such prejudices whole lives are built. But ours was also a family of Anthonys, 
after my great-grandfather abandoned, per our legend, by a teenage mom in a bureau drawer in Pagani near Pompeii and rescued by a neighbor who shipped him off to alone a few years later to America. Big Tony Pariso, as I knew him, who ran a junkyard in Brooklyn and had an Anthony of his own, even bigger, who also had an Anthony. There was a cousin Anthony in Maryland and at least half a dozen among us whose various names bore an Anthony in the middle, including me. And I, in my turn, named an Anthony as well. So it wasn't the brand of spaghetti that warmed me to you, and we called it macaroni anyhow, no matter the shape. No, it was that holler out the window, Anthony, Anthony, that marked you, nameless though you were, as my blood. Mary Fiumara, 88, mother in a spaghetti ad. Ah, that's sweet. That's really nice. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was the miracle of, of working on this book, was uh-huh. one day seeing that the woman in the commercial had died, and then my family history flooded into me, and I knew yeah. right at, at that moment, yeah. that's what this poem is about. Right, yeah. In my family, it was Vince. There was Vince's. Yeah, to- uh, Anthony so and Joseph in our family. Yeah, yeah. It's either, it's either you know, yeah. one or the other. <laughs> and and I have a Vincent and an Anthony, my yeah. sons. Um, and we we had these weird distinctions, you know, like the dad would be Tony, the son would be Anthony. Uh-huh. The dad would be Joey, the son would be Joseph. Uh-huh. You know, and, and family things like that. They, there's quite a few of them throughout a book. Yeah. My birth, um, my parents' deaths, uh-huh. um, my father's hatred of, of Ralph Branca, the <laughs> Dodgers pitcher. Um <laughs> You know, my father's predilection for watching Mannix reruns into the night. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> you know, when you start thinking about death and the past yeah. and the pop culture of your childhood, you're thinking about your family, right. your parents, people right. you've lost, childhood friends. Right. And that all comes up in here. It's, it's easily the most personal thing I've ever written. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. And thank you so much for for bringing this quixotic thing to your listeners. (laughs) Well, it was funny. I mean, you know this, but the listeners don't know this. I was putting my my radio show together for for this week, right? Last week I was putting it together because we've done done the shows remotely since the pandemic, right? And I just happened to put in a Sharon Jones song, uh, Pick It Up, Land in the Cut. And... And, 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 and then, like, moments later, your book arrived. And I'm looking through it, and I'm going, holy shit, this is Sharon Jones. And I called you up and said, would you like to read this, or is it, can I read it? And you said, go ahead and read it. So people can hear it, um, me read it uh, on KMHD this, this weekend. Shall we end with that one? Sure. <clears throat> this, this first set of phrases were published in her obituary in the New York Times so Uh it's in quote marks yeah too short too fat too black too old that's what they said when they turned you away from the stages and record labels where you tried no demanded to have your voice heard but even though their ears should forever be suspect or should suspect their brains for ignoring what they witnessed 
Their greater failing was in their eyes. They couldn't see inside you where, despite your mammoth voice and fireball dance steps, your greatest gifts, resilience, determination, patience, hunger, guts, lay in such ample supply that when, in your 40s, you were finally granted the mic, the spotlight, you gripped them hard enough to wring out every drop of life and put a sound into the world that no one couldn't ignore. They should have known, those fools, when you showed up to cut records in your prison guard uniform, when you left your hotels before dawn on show days to go fishing, when you played concerts bald after chemotherapy, that you were tough enough and cool enough and strong enough and damn sure ready enough to, when you finally got your turn, do what it was you always did, Miss Sharon Jones, you made it yours. Sharon Jones, soul singer with Dap Kings, dies at 60. Amen. God bless. What a loss. All right. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, Tom. As we like to say at the end of these, that's entertainment. (laughs) 